On this week's edition of New York Now, Inspector General Lucy Lang joins us with an update on the work of her office and more. And later, we have everything you need to know about renting in a new installment of New York And. Plus, a few standout races from Election Day, which was Tuesday. We'll have details. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. Tuesday was Election Day. But aside from two statewide ballot proposals, only local races were on the ballot. And there were a few results that stood out. On Long Island, Republican Ed Romaine won the race for Suffolk County Executive, flipping that seat for the first time in a decade. That means that both counties on Long Island are now led by Republicans. And in the Bronx, Christy Marmorado became the first Republican elected to the city council from that borough in more than four decades. But Democrats had some historic wins as well. In rural Dutchess County, Democrat Anthony Parisi won the race for district attorney. That's the first time in at least four decades that a Democrat has won that seat. And over in Erie County, County Executive and Democrat Mark Polenkars won a fourth term in office. That's unprecedented for either party in Erie County. Other than that, no huge surprises across the state, but check your local news outlets for full results. But on the two statewide ballot measures, both of those passed. One was to allow smaller cities to borrow more money, and the other was to extend a provision that allows cities to borrow money to care for sewers without it affecting their debt limit. That's extended every 10 years, so we'll see it again in 2033. But moving on now to accountability in state government. It's been two years since Lucy Lang was appointed as New York's Inspector General. It's a position that oversees claims of misconduct at state government agencies, like in state prisons, where, according to the IG's office, workers' compensation fraud is common. And that's just one example of a huge scope of work. We sat down this week with the IG for an update. Inspector General Lucy Lang, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Dan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. So it's about a year into your open data plan, which I want to start with. It's really interesting. Um, you're adding a lot of transparency to what you do in your office. Can you kind of describe for our viewers how it looked like before and what you've changed to make it more transparent now? For the first time, we created an open data portal. And every month, we upload all of the information about complaints we receive where they come from, what agencies they relate to, and how they're being handled within the office. And we're doing this for two reasons. One is so that journalists, researchers, and members of the public can dig in and try to understand what it is we're doing. And the other is to really lead by example to the agencies under our jurisdiction and encourage them to become more transparent with the public. It's been really exciting to see how it has done exactly what it is, is intended to do over the course of the past year. We have received uh, something like 3,700 views of our open data portal. Mm. We have had hundreds of uh, our data sets downloaded. So what that tells us is that people really are, in fact, using the data to look into our work. We also have seen that our, um, our FOIL requests are up 22% over the course of the past year. So in addition to looking at the data, 
reporters and others are using it to follow up to learn more about our casework, which is precisely what we had hoped. So you have a lot that you look at, a lot of agencies, a lot of government bodies. I think I asked you this last time you were on the show, but I want to ask you again because I don't remember and it may have changed. Um, do you see yourself looking into some areas of government more than others? I know you focused some of your work on docs, but I think that might be more responsive to a lot of complaints about docs. But you tell me, are there areas of focus that you see um, that you look at more than others? What I find most thrilling about the job is that in addition to doing the day-to-day -day work of processing complaints in, for example, the workers' compensation system or the welfare system, that we also have the ability to zoom out and to think about big picture issues. Mm. And for me, what I feel most compelled to direct our resources towards are the agencies that are designed to protect the most vulnerable New Yorkers. So for example, we've been working closely with the Office of Children and Family Services. We have been visiting all of the secure juvenile detention facilities and really paying close attention to how those facilities are serving or not serving the populations who are housed there. Yeah, tell me about what you hear from them. I'm curious about what those kids say. I mean, this is such an area, like for those kids, they're in these places. And, you know, it's for a reason, but they probably experience a lot of trauma inside. You know, their whole lives are changed. What do you hear from them? Well, of course, we know that uh, kids with trauma are most more likely to end up in uh, the juvenile justice system. Yeah. And uh, our hope is that the staff in those facilities are uh, are given trauma-informed resources to enable them to to better support those young people. An area of particular interest to me has been around the kind of literacy education that's provided to incarcerated populations and making sure that young people who are at risk of not learning how to read are being given um, evidence-based literacy education to enable them to be full participants in New York society when they return home. Mm. Speaking of the justice system, it's been about a year since your office issued this uh, really breathtaking report about uh, DOCS, which is the Department of Correction and Community Supervision. Um, your report basically laid out that people of color in state prisons faced harsher disciplinary measures than their white counterparts. Um, I'm wondering if you've heard anything about that in the past year. You know, that, that report, the intention of it, I think, was probably to create change. Do we see that? We've been very vigilantly working with the Department of Corrections to make sure that they're following our recommendations. And to date, it seems that they are implementing the protocols that we recommended in our report, but it's too soon to tell whether it has had an impact on decreasing those unconscionable racial disparities. And anything else that you're looking at in docs right now? I mean, that's a big issue. And I think that report was, was huge. I was skimming through it today. Um, any other issue areas in that system that you're looking at? Well, an area that actually the uh, Office of Children and Family Services and the Department of Corrections have in common is related to a report we put out this summer about workers' compensation fraud abuse cases in the Department of Corrections. Yes. And there is a, a provision in the, the prevailing contract for corrections officers that lacks the safeguards that other comparable professions have to prevent people from committing workers' compensation fraud. And it actually first came to my attention visiting a secure juvenile facility, which is under the purview of the Office of Children and Family Services, where a young person in a classroom said to me, Miss, can you get us more staff? Mm. And I said, why do you ask? And he said, well, we're not able to have outdoor rec because we don't have enough staff. 
Wow. So when I spoke to the administrators there, they said we have a huge number of people out on workers' compensation, so we can't have kids both in the classroom and getting their outdoor recreation time simply because of lack of staffing. So it was that conversation and then many conversations at prisons across the state with administrators, corrections officers, and incarcerated New Yorkers that led us to do a, a full assessment of workers' compensation abuses in the Department of Corrections and to determine that at some facilities there are up to 40 percent of the staff out on workers' compensation leave, that that means that there are staff who are forced to work double and triple shifts, who are missing important family holidays, and also to identify some incredibly alarming trends, including that workers' compensation absences tend to spike, um, for example, right after Memorial Day, right mm. at the Christmas holidays, and in some regions of the state around the beginning of hunting season. Mm. I want to switch kind of switch gears here and talk about gaming, which is actually an area that I didn't know your office was so involved in. Um, gaming, I mean like the gaming commission, people, uh, you know, at horse tracks, gambling, things like that. You receive a lot of complaints about gaming. What are, what do you, what are they, I guess, is the question, because I was reading about this today and I kind of understand it, but what kind of complaints do you receive about gaming that well, your office can act on? Sure. So we were only given jurisdiction over the gaming industry in the summer of 2021 and have been really working to uh, collaborate with the industry to get the message out there that we are here to provide support to folks who work in that industry. Sure. Just today, we published, and this is consistent with our transparency plan, we put out about 13 uh, letters that were sent out to our jurisdictional agencies, one of which is related to gaming, in which um, a, a uh, staff member was uh, doing unapproved outside work. So that's the kind of, uh, one of many kinds of complaints that we get in. Now, of course, we get all kinds of complaints like, uh, I didn't win the lotto, that aren't really <laughs> under our jurisdiction. But we are always looking to make sure that the employees of the gaming industry are um, following the standards of integrity that New Yorkers deserve. Now, last year, you saw your office saw a 150% increase in complaints related to gaming compared to 2021. Do you see that trend continuing this year as and like, do you have the same amount of complaints this year so far as last year? Or do you see it continuing to go up as people learn that you have this jurisdiction? We've worked really hard to get out into the gaming community and have, in fact, as of this month, trained uh, every member of the, the gaming community across the state. So I expect that those numbers will continue to trend upward, not because there is necessarily more malfeasance, but I hope because we are making ourselves more available and known as a resource. Mm. And I have to ask you about funding because it's about two months away from the legislative session. That starts off the state budget cycle and everyone asks for more money all the time. I don't know if you are. Do you feel like you have enough resources right now to do what you're doing or would you like more? We're able to do a tremendous amount with what we have. It is also an exciting time because we're expanding our technological capabilities as really all law enforcement and investigative bodies have to do. Mm. We have for the first time ever appointed a chief technology officer who is leading us into the new era of AI and electronic investigations. We're working to become more efficient, and of course that requires resources. So I expect that in the coming years we'll continue to focus resources on our technological expansion, which is uh, arguably the uh, amongst the best ways that we can have impact. 
in the many different agencies over which we have jurisdiction. That's really exciting. You mentioned AI. So would it be like you're looking into matters involved in AI, or do you want to somehow use AI to uh, make your office more efficient? It really remains to be seen how it's used, and we will only use it in very conscientious and responsible ways. But we think about things like the massive document material, not documentary materials we review in virtually every investigation, yeah. and whether there are ways for us to employ technology to help assist us at doing that more efficiently. That's really interesting. We'll wait to see how you implement it. Inspector General Lucy Lang, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Dan. And if you have something you think the IG's office should look into, you can call them or email. Their hotline is at 1-800-DO-RIGHT. That's 1-800-367-4448. And their email is complaints at ig.ny.gov. We'll put both of those on our website as well. That's at nynow.org. Returning now to housing in New York, and specifically renting. If you're a tenant in New York, you might not know what rights you have after you sign a lease. At the same time, Local governments around the state have tried to make changes in the past few years to make housing more affordable. We lay out all that and more in a new edition of our Civic Series, New York and. Welcome to New York and Renting. I'm your host, Raga Justin. Few things are more fundamental to our stability and well-being than having a place to live. And as it turns out, living can be pretty expensive. Rents just about everywhere increased dramatically during the pandemic. And while rent costs aren't rising as quickly as they were back in 2021, they are still rising. This is a big issue in New York State, especially considering that it has the lowest rate of home ownership in the country due to the high density housing of New York City, which houses around 40% of the state's population. What makes this a notable issue for this show is that housing laws and regulations are heavily controlled by local politics. So if housing affordability is something you feel passionate about, we'll give you plenty of material to sink your teeth into. In this episode, we're going to hear from tenant and property owner advocates, take a look at tenants' rights in New York, and look at what cities around the state are doing to reel in high rents. First, let's look at some of the basic rights a tenant has when renting a residential unit or building. It is illegal for a property owner to refuse to rent an apartment to someone based on their sex, nationality, race, disability, age, or marital status. A property owner can refuse to rent to a prospective tenant if they believe their income is too low to afford the payments. When you sign a lease, it is common practice to pay first month's rent plus a security deposit, but it is no longer legal in New York to be charged first and last month's rent upfront plus security deposit. The security deposit itself cannot cost any more than one month's rent. When you move out, the remainder of the security deposit must be returned to you within 14 days and provided with a receipt describing any subtractions that were made to cover damages. This 14-day deadline only applies to non-rent regulated units. Deposits for regulated and stabilized units must be returned within an undefined, reasonable amount of time, according to the Office of the State Attorney General. New York is a state full of historic properties, and while that can be very charming, old buildings can come with plenty of issues. This can mean increased presence of rodents and insects, issues with heating, and water infrastructure and more. Under New York state law, tenants have the right to a habitable living space. 
meaning that the apartment they rent should be clean, safe, and livable. For example, if your unit has a black mold issue and the owner refuses to take care of it, that would be a violation of your warranty of habitability. That said, according to the state attorney general's office, any uninhabitable condition caused by the tenant or persons under the tenant's direction or control does not constitute a breach of the warranty of habitability. In such a case, it is the tenant's responsibility to remedy the condition. If you notify your landlord about a habitability issue in your unit and they refuse to acknowledge or address the issue, you may have the right to sue for a rent reduction or even withhold rent, though the latter puts you at risk of being sued by the property owner. But what if there is an unaddressed safety hazard in your apartment and you can't afford a lawyer? The good news is that there are free legal services and resources available. And if you check out the web version of this video, we'll have links to resources in the description. There are also plenty of other tenant and landlord laws that we don't have the time to cover. So we put some helpful resources from the state attorney general's office in the description as well. Next, let's look at some of the action happening around New York State in regards to local governments trying to make rental units more affordable. Most of what we'll go over in this section is handled by local councils and officials, people who have more influence over housing than you might think. These are prime examples of a potential form of change that could be made in your hometown. The first topic we'll look at is inclusionary zoning. There is no one-size-fits-all version of inclusionary zoning, as its implementation can vary between municipalities. But it generally means that a town or city can require new residential developments to designate a certain percentage of units as affordable. For example, in Albany, the percentage of required affordable units is determined by how large the planned development would be. If a 50-unit apartment building is built, 10% of those units have to be affordable. In the world of housing, affordable usually means that no more than 30% of a person's gross income is going towards rent. In Albany, inclusionary zoning is tied to 60% of AMI, the area's median income. This means that affordable units have to be priced so that someone who makes 60% or less of the area's median income can rent that unit without spending more than 30% of their gross income. Sorry for all the numbers. Proponents of inclusionary zoning see it as a way to incrementally add affordable units to an area's new housing stock, with concerns that new market rate housing is largely unaffordable to locals. Opponents, such as Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan, see the regulation as something that incentivizes developers to build elsewhere, where their profit margins could be higher. This led to Sheehan's vetoing Albany's updated version of the regulation, only to be overridden by the city's common council. But even advocates of inclusionary zoning see it as more of a piece to the overall puzzle, rather than a be-all solution to affordable housing. Next, instead of looking at the creation of new units, we'll look at the loss of units. And by that, I'm talking about short-term versus long-term rentals. You may be familiar with platforms like Airbnb and Verbo as alternatives to staying at a hotel. However, despite being considered part of the hospitality industry, short-term rentals are usually regulated differently. They also can be more profitable to run than long-term rentals, which has some housing advocates concerned about a reduction in long-term rental availability. We spoke with Daniel Atona, a political coordinator from the Hudson Valley Advocacy Group for the Many, for his thoughts on short-term rentals. 
So short-term rentals, especially vacation rentals, bring a whole a lot of problems. So by turning homes into hotels, uh, it shrinks the housing supply, which ends up driving up prices and also destroys the character of a community. Ideally, we could pass a vacation rental ban, meaning that only owner-occupied short-term rentals would be allowed. For example, that would be a ban on entire homes being turned into Airbnbs, but then still allowing someone to list their spare bedroom on Airbnb. So I think it's okay for someone who has a spare bedroom to offer it up as a short-term rental to make a little extra cash. But it's not okay for outside investors to be buying up homes and then turning them into permanent hotels. A new law in New York City requires short-term hosts to register their units and be approved by the city before renting them out. The law also stipulates that the host must be physically present in the rented home. This is in an effort to prevent people from buying up large sections of housing and converting them to short-term rentals. Airbnb released a statement on the new restrictions, calling them punitive and burdensome. Another housing cost control measure being looked at around the state is the ETPA, also known as the Emergency Tenant Protections Act. This is a 1974 state law that allows municipalities and counties to subject housing units to rent stabilization if the area's housing occupancy rate falls below 5%. This regulation only applies to buildings built before 1974 that have six or more residential units. According to the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act, the specifics of the rent stabilization are determined by a rent guidelines board. In 2022, the city of Kingston enacted the ETPA after finding it had a vacancy rate of only 1.57%, though property owners in the area question the accuracy of that figure. To talk about what makes the ETPA unique in the Hudson Valley, we spoke with Daniel Atona from For the Many. The thing that was unique about Kingston, it's the first upstate city to do ETPA, but then they also attempted to do a rent decrease, which had never been done before. So that's why that's under like heavy litigation right now. But this year, the Kingston Rent Guidelines Board passed a rent freeze, which is fairly common for ETPA municipalities. We expect both the cities of Newburgh and city of Poughkeepsie to opt into ETPA soon as well. You know, property owners, I'm, I'm sure they will react negatively, but the real purpose of housing is to keep people housed. Housing should not be a commodity um, and should not be treated like an invest investment vehicle. Housing should be a human right. Many of these cost control laws like inclusionary zoning and the ETPA look to control rents by placing caps or freezes in place. Jay Martin, the executive director of CHIP, the Community Housing Improvement Program in New York City, believes that we should instead look at the issue of housing supply. What we know about economics is that more supply will lower costs overall. Just like we saw during COVID when there was more supply, renters had the ability to negotiate with their landlords because they didn't have other people coming into the market to rent the property once they left. If they left, there wasn't somebody else moving in to rent the apartment. So they said, if I leave, then you're not going to have somebody else rent for me. So you better rent, lower my rent or else I'm going to leave and you're going to be left with an empty apartment. You don't get more housing if you regulate the rents to a point where people aren't financially making some return on the investment. The last thing we're going to go over is eviction. Eviction is when a property owner gets a judgment of possession from a New York court resulting in the tenant having to vacate the property. This can happen if the tenant refuses or is incapable of paying rent, is conducting criminal activity in the unit, or is destructive to the property, along with other reasons. Recently, there has been a push at the local and state levels for more eviction protections. One of the more controversial housing laws that has been proposed at the local and state level in New York is good cause eviction, which would modify eviction protections for tenants and place a limit on rent increases. 
Good cause essentially establishes a short list of reasons a tenant can be evicted and states that any reason outside of that list is null. In addition to adding eviction protections for tenants, proponents see good cause laws as a way to slow down displacement, with some proposed laws preventing the displacement of tenants due to unreasonable rent hikes. The state version of the bill defines unreasonable as a percentage exceeding either 3% or one and one half times the annual percentage change in the consumer price index for the region. Eviction reform laws have had trouble getting passed in the state and have struggled in New York's court system as well. We spoke with Jay Martin for his thoughts. What I would argue that programs and proposals like could cause to, they don't actually incentivize the production of more housing. They actually disincentivize it. So they reduce the amount of income that a property owner could, could make by building or maintaining more housing. That actually exacerbates the supply. Any new person that comes in now is going to face a market that's highly constricted because no one's going to build new housing there. There's 3.3 million units of housing in New York. One million are rent stabilized. Those 3.3 million units pay extremely high rents because there's a million units that don't pay higher rents. They're actually, their rents are regulated. If the costs continue to go up and the rents expenses are, are, are capped, there will have to be a cost paid somewhere else down the line in the market. Outside of the cost control measures, many property owners against good cause also state concerns about the difficulty of evicting unruly tenants. But it should be noted that the current version of the bill states that illegal or destructive behavior, as well as conduct that interferes with the comfort of the landlord or other tenants, is fair grounds for eviction. So that's a lot of housing law we just went over. Remember that a lot of these regulations happen at as local of a level as possible. If Kingston puts a limit on rent hikes or Syracuse incentivizes new housing construction, nothing happens to your rent or your property in Troy. But what this does mean is that one of the biggest expenses in your life can be directly impacted by your local officials. All the more reason to vote, talk to your representatives, and organize around issues that you find important. The possibility of change is right there. That's all for today. Keep learning, and I'll see y'all later. And you can find more from our Civic Series on our website. That's where you can also find all of our past shows, more reporting from the state capitol, stories from our partners in public media, and a lot more. Again, that's at nynow.org. That's all the time we have for this week, but we will be back next week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week, and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET and by the New York State Education Department.